0: Welcome to Success That Last, a podcast that seeks to have honest, candid conversations about the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we'll talk to a business owner, real estate investor, or industry consultant about their own experiences, observations, and insights as it pertains to that complicated topic of success. Welcome back to Success That Lasts. Jim Collins. I'm talking about the American researcher, author, speaker, and consultant on the topic of business. Chances are, if you went to business school, you were forced to read several of his books Good to Great, Built to Last, Great by Choice, just to name a few. They're loaded with fascinating insights about business and business leaders. In business school, I remember reading this quote Comfort isn't the objective of a visionary company. Indeed, Visionary companies install powerful mechanisms to create discomfort, to obliterate complacency, and thereby stimulate change and improvement before the external world demands it. Change is somewhat inevitable, and right now in the midst of COVID, we're all digesting an immense amount of change. But sometimes change can also come voluntarily, but it's not easy. It reminds me of another quote, you never change until you step outside your comfort zone change begins at the end of your comfort zone. And so it's in that spirit of change that uh, we jump into today's conversation because DeLap actually just recently announced a change. Despite being almost 90 years old, the organization really has not had too many different leaders over those 90 years. There's leadership stability at the top, which is a great thing. And now DeLap has recently announced Earl Pierce is our new CEO. Earl's not new to LAP though. He's been around for about 15 years and he's not new to accounting either. And so in today's conversation with Earl Pierce, we're gonna talk about this change, how he's feeling about it, what he's looking forward to, and how he's going to approach it. Earl kind of exemplifies one of the traits that Jim Collins talks about in his books, the need to preserve the core and stimulate progress. It's the power of and, it's both. And so we'll talk about the journey that led Earl to the place that he is today, some of the people that have influenced his journey, his thoughts on mentorship, both giving and receiving it, and uh, we'll also talk about the power of financial literacy. This is a tool that has transformed Earl's capacity to add value to clients in the community. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into today's conversation with Delap's new CEO, Earl Pierce. Earl Pierce, we're live. Welcome to Success That Lasts. Thank you, Jared. It's good to be here. So important first question, how many podcasts have you been on?
1: How many podcasts have I been on? This yes. is my first.
0: This Maiden. is my first. So it's probably going to be your best podcast that you've ever done. I think, I, I hope that's the case. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, let's start with congratulations, CEO of Delap LLP. That's pretty exciting. and. As your friend and business partner, congratulations, and I'm happy for you and excited for you. And we haven't had too many leaders. firm has been around for almost 90 years, and on a hand, you could probably count up the number of individual leaders that have been asked or tasked with leading the organization. So the few and the mighty, well, congratulations. Thank you, Jared. It's,
1: uh, it's a challenge that uh,
0: I look forward to. So probably all kinds of emotions as you're tasked with the challenge of stepping into the role of CEO in the midst of tremendous uncertainty, you know, unprecedented uncertainty in many respects, you know, unemployment is skyrocketing and who knows how this all shakes out. So kind of a challenging moment to step in as the CEO, but also, you know, the organization was in a really good spot, you know, finishing 2019 and so well positioned going into 2020. I guess, talk to me about what you're feeling as the organization's new leader.
1: That's a really good question. as you said, it's uh, it's a challenging time, and and certainly, I anticipated when when I became aware that I was going to be the next CEO. I thought to myself, "Man, this is going to be tough." Of course, that was back in January, uh, prior to COVID nineteen and and the disruption that's that's happened there. But uh, overall, uh, there's a lot of things that I find comforting. Right, as you said, we were in a in a good position financially, and we'd. Um, We'd kind of, you know, stored up some grains and whatnot, you know, in the the storehouse there so that we could, you know, weather this thing as we entered a busy season with a lot of change and a lot of unknown. Another thing that I find comforting is, you know, great part about a partnership is, um, you know, oftentimes you've got, you know, great energetic leaders. You've got great energetic leaders who have been here for a long time. Some that haven't been here for so long, but certainly we've got, uh, we've got several partners who have been through not COVID nineteen, but certainly been through ups and downs in the economy as leaders within our firm or other firms, um, you know, in in previous you know downturns and things. It's so it's comforting to know that those guys are on my bench, and you know I can head in and query them as far as things you know actions they've taken, things that they feel like they did right, things like they feel you know they may not have reacted. You know, in the best way in in past uh, you know economic turbulence, and uh, so having those guys there is comforting. And as I told our team when I was introduced as the new CEO, if it were me having to do this all, I certainly wouldn't feel good about it. But having a great team around me, uh, you know, gave me the courage to be able to take on this challenge. And uh, although the challenge looks different today. Than it did four months ago. Um, I'm certainly, you know, encouraged to have the team that we have that you know can support us as we tackle all of these new challenges, all of these new questions as we get to the next normal.
0: Totally. One of the fun things, I guess, if there are fun things in the midst of this challenge, is kind of COVID culture. Like there's all sorts of new things. So, television documentaries, Netflix. You know, Tiger King. One of the documentaries that I enjoyed was uh, the Last Dance, kind of that exploration of Michael Jordan's final season and kind of the various championships, the sub story of each of those years. Phil Jackson's in there; he's got all kinds of great quotes. He's kind of, I love coach quotes as it applies to business because so often businesses really are just teams, right? So he talked about the strength of the team is the individual, and the strength of the individual is the team, and and certainly within our organization, I see and feel that often. You know, so to just reiterate your confidence in the team to kind of lighten the load in this transition, I concur. I'm excited and bullish about what's in front of us. So here you are now, CEO. You've been at the lab now for a third of your life, coming up on 15 years, is that right? Yep, 15 years on Saturday. Awesome, well happy uh, work anniversary, I guess, right? Yep. So you've been at the organization for a third of your life, but, and so today we find you in the chair labeled CEO, but that's not where you started. So I guess kind of talk to me about the journey to get to where you are today. Some of the decisions and forks in the road that led to this moment. I guess, did you grow up thinking you're gonna be a CPA? Kind of start at the beginning.
1: The beginning, it's interesting. So I I grew up not far from here. I was just across I-5 and Tigard. And growing up, I often tell people that, uh, you know I wanted to be a cowboy. I've changed that, and I've said I wanted to be a cow person. Um, so uh, anyway i I didn't end up becoming that uh, when I, I wanted
0: to be I wanted to be the karate kid, yeah, third or fourth grade, I realized that's there's not a lot of people that hire the karate kid, so <laughs>
1: there it is. so I gave up on the cowboy thing, and uh, I decided I was going to go into business. And my dad can tell you that I told him, "I want to go into business so I can help people." And that really is kind of what's kind of fueled my passion. And so, you know I considered sales jobs and and different things, But part of me said, "You know, I kind of like this public accounting thing. I, I did well in the courses in college. Uh, I actually studied accounting, you know because I was sold on the fact that it was the language of business. And then I figured that I'd get an MBA uh, after getting a few years of experience at one of the uh, large accounting firms. Anyway, so I started with KPMG, did a couple of years as an auditor. I was probably a little bit impatient. I looked around me when I was at KPMG and I said, whose job do I want? And I kind of said, hey, I was in Los Angeles and I looked around and said, I kind of like the job of a senior manager. And I'd been with KPMG a couple of years, and it was gonna take another six, seven years to, to become a senior manager. And I thought, you know, I liked the relationship that the senior manager was able to have with the clients, kind of a little more consultative. And, and they reached out and asked them questions about how, how they might structure things. Um, and uh, anyway, so I kind of liked that. But I thought, you know, if I were to switch to tax, I think I could have that relationship sooner, right? I was in Los Angeles at the time, and funny thing, when I took the job with KPMG um, in Los Angeles, a lot of people said to me, are you gonna be okay living in the big city? And, uh, and I said, yeah. I mean, I was raised in Portland, it was really tigered, but I thought Portland was a big city. I arrived in LA, previously having really only visited Disneyland, Anaheim, right? Yep. And uh, I was like, "Whoa, this is a really big city." So I ended up moving out of Los Angeles. We moved up uh, up on the central coast of California, up by a little north of Santa Barbara. And I took a job with a small firm. There were about seven of us, nine of us in a in a busy time. Seven a lot of the time uh, in a in a small firm in Solvang, which is a little Danish village. If you haven't been there, I recommend it. Their bakeries are fantastic. But uh, anyway, so. I was there, I did a few audits and uh, there was only a few audits, you know, performed by that audit or by that office. So I switched to tax and it was, you know, I enjoyed learning there, it was a great experience. And uh, a few years later, I thought, you know, I think it's time to return to Portland, come back home.
0: Do you have kids at that point?
1: Uh, we did have kids. We um, So my daughter, Allison, who's 19, uh when we moved back to portland she was uh almost four and ethan was born at that time and, and he was almost two so we bounced back to portland and um and upon returning to portland i ended up taking a job with um with the lab and uh, my dad had hoped that i would join the family business when i came back um i told him that uh Public accounting was like a, just a temptress, you know she it was hard to break away and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I joined DeLAP um, and I kind of felt like KPMG, sometimes I felt like I was a number, but I never complained about the resource, right? There was lots of resources. When I was at the smaller firm, I definitely didn't feel like a number. I was Earl, but the resources were a little bit lacking. Um, when I got to DelaP, I was like, man, this is just right this is fantastic. I told you that story, Jared, at one point, and you began to tell people we're, we're a Goldilocks firm. We're just right. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, that it took so many more words. And Jared being just a wordsmith genius, you know, came up with, hey, this is Goldilocks firm. And, and I still believe that to this day, I really love being part of the team at the lab. I love being able to, um, to, you know, we have resources. We've got good resources. We can serve clients of you know various size and serve them well, and uh, and I really really like that. And to come full circle, I told my dad as a teenager that I wanted to go into a business where I could help people, and I not only help my clients, but I help members of our team. We train, we you know invest in one another, and uh, and that's been very very satisfying. And uh, hence the reason I've been here for 15
0: years. So that's awesome. So uh, so you showed up kind of a, not quite a pup, but, but young in your career, 15 years ago. And so you've kind of grown up in many ways professionally here at the firm. Do you have any uh, kind of fun memories of, uh, of what it looked like to kind of step into leadership as more and more of it was uh, was extended to you? Yeah,
1: I've got a couple stories that come to mind. So one one is kind of fun. Um so at one point I had I'd probably been a manager as as you say, you know, I I had 5 years of work experience when I got to Delap and uh so within a I think within a couple years of joining Delap, I was promoted to manager and I was given an office and so I know that early on when I got into that office um so I knew the point is I wasn't a, a very experienced manager. I certainly wasn't a partner, but uh, one day, but I was a eager manager. Me. I you was, was eager. Eager, excited about finally had a real office. Exactly. so I had my own office, but one day I was walking back to my office and I saw, I saw someone who was clearly very upset. One of my coworkers was very upset, and so I paused and said, she sat right across the, the hallway from me and I said, Are "You okay?" And she said. You know, a, a client just absolutely cussed me out, like kind of berated us and our team, and and uh, and it, it really it really upset me. And I said, "Hey, I'm 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 sorry. I'm sorry that that happened. Like, did you talk to the partner about it?" And you know, well, th- they aren't here. I said, "Do you want me to call them?" And she said, "Well, what would you say?" And I said, "I'll call them right now." And so I I dialed the phone. Said, what's what's his name? She tells me his name. I pick up the phone. I say, This is Earl Pierce with the laugh. I hear that you just cussed out one of my employees. Uh uh, you know, the gentleman on the other end of the phone wasn't prepared for the phone call and says, uh uh, and I said, Do you have something to say to her right now? She's here. Do you have something to say? Uh yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Don't tell me, tell her. I handed her the phone and that uh, and she says, you just I can see sorry you know he gives some explanation and then uh you know hands the phone back to me and i said thank you don't ever let that happen again and you know got off the phone fortunately he didn't ask who i was or what my position or title was but um uh, but i've always i've always um you know enjoyed supporting supporting my team and and you know being part of that team and loyal to one another and and uh, helping each other get through the tough times and the, the tough parts that uh, that can you know, in each job there's tough parts and so helping people get through those. Uh, second thing, um, had an interesting experience as a I was the mentor, um, a young professional who had entered public accounting and and frankly was um, was struggling a little bit and not only were they struggling a little bit with the work that they were doing, they were struggling with trying to enjoy the work that they were doing. And um, again, I was, a, I was a young manager, this was probably about the same time, these two events, and uh, this person came to me and we were talking and I, I said, you know, tell me, what, what, are, what, is it, what are your aspirations, right? What, what is it you want? And she described the job that she wanted, right? And the job that she wanted wasn't in public accounting. And I said, why Why are you here? And she said, well, the professors at the school that I went to said that you should try to stay at a public accounting firm until you make manager. Well, the job that she wanted, I, I, didn't, I didn't really feel like she needed to wait to become a manager to qualify for this job. And I said, have you ever applied for a job like this? And um, it was an interesting discussion because She'd never considered it. She was a senior accountant, so you're sharing these ideas and coaching with them. And um, when she applied for the job that she wanted, and she got the job that she wanted, and she was excited. I felt a little bit fearful, um, having you know, having more or less coached her and helped her to you know get clarity about what she wanted and what her goals were and where she wanted to be. And she ended up leaving the firm and. Uh, and and it, it all worked out okay, but uh, but I think you know that's the other uh, another piece of um, you know kind of what 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 I enjoy about public accounting is being able to coach people, being able to be open and, and honest with them, and helping them to do what's right for them. And we have people that come; they get developed here and then they go on to pursue the remainder of their dreams or or they use this experience and skill they've gained here to be able to excel and you know and, and land you know that next opportunity that they're looking for but to me that's very satisfying to be able to uh to kind of glean what they can here and help create smooth transitions you know so that uh so that we can you know constantly have new opportunities to To help people grow them in their careers and and have them go on to be successful in whatever it is that they're you know interested in or passionate about
0: i concur it might be in part public accounting earl but i actually think that it's also part cultural i've been at the lab now for 10 years thanks also Mm -hmm. for uh not objecting to my hire i appreciate for the listeners Earl was part of my interview process at Delap, so I had to make it through pretty ferocious Earl Pierce interview in order to land my dream job. But, you know, having been here now for 10 years and contrasting against some other industries and and organizations that I've been a part of, there's really an emphasis on living our mission statement in a way that I hadn't previously experienced. You know, investing in the success of others is truly something that we strive for. I'll emphasize strive, right? Not perfect. We haven't mastered it yet. And sometimes it's challenging. It's kind of that Brene Brown, like Mm -hmm. a vulnerability of aspiring to be more than what you are, but then also just being honest about who you are at that moment. But I think it's something kind of unique to the firm where you could sit down with a mentee and talk truth and prioritizing their hopes and dreams over the organization, right? Mm This is probably best for Delap to keep everyone. But if somebody's, Passion or dream is to move to something else, and you can aid them in that process and develop them to prepare them for that moment. That's, I think, maybe not as common as what you might give credit to. But you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to kind of dig at a little bit more. So you talked about being a mentor, but you've probably also been a mentee and probably continue to be a mentee. So I guess when I think about or ask the question, who other than your father or mother would be somebody who's incredibly influential to you and professionally influential to who you are today as a leader, who comes to mind? So
1: Donald Caldwell, he and I once won the best bromance uh, in the office award, but uh, it was so more than that.
0: Talk to me about Don, I mean, I know who Don is, but for those that don't, who's Don Caldwell? So well, Don Caldwell, Caldwell, Don Caldwell when,
1: I, when I began with the, uh, with the firm, um, Don was already a partner. And uh, and I've had, um, I had a lot of great experiences working with and, and working for Don. Um, so when I became a partner in uh, on January 1st of 2012, Don retired on December 31st, 2011. So Don freed up a spot for me and uh, and then, you know, Don stuck around. And, you know, for the first seven years, I was a partner. And you know, continued to mentor me, be a resource for me, challenge me, right? And um, and one thing that was nice, um, the so Don Caldwell, one of the things that that I learned early on my first year that we did evaluations as employees or of our employees, and I was sitting on the on the uh, in the in the room as a partner. At one point, someone said, "Hey, you know, sometimes we're too nice, right?" And um, and I'd heard it enough times through the years at Delap that I that I challenged the partner group. I said, here's what I want you to do every time that you consider saying sometimes we're too nice or, you know, you know, maybe we're too nice. I want you to change that that word, those words to we're not honest enough and it's a way you know everyone wants to be seen as too nice but no one wants to be seen as not honest enough and oftentimes they're synonymous when when we think about the situations we would use those so one thing that was great about don as a a mentor is don was never too nice in a way sometimes you wanted him to be too nice but he shot it straight is yeah donald shoots straight and absolutely He's open and honest. You you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. And you know what you see is what you get. So um, anyway, but Donald Caldwell, he's a great, great guy. He was a great mentor, and you know certainly appreciate all that uh, that he taught me. And being that I've been at Delap for fourteen year or fifteen years, and that Don was here with me, you know, for fourteen years, there was that moment when he when he retired uh, for good. That you kind of feel like Harry Potter right at the end of that first one or the second one, I guess. When the uh, fourth one, I can't remember which one anyway. Hagrid comes back from uh, from Azkaban, and uh, Harry says, you know, says, "Welcome back." And he says, "Well, there's no Hogwarts without you, Hagrid." And uh, sometimes there's that feeling for me of, "Oh, there's no Don, there's no Delap without Donald Caldwell," but uh, we're getting by, and um, and certainly you know, I, I now enjoy having having him as a friend. He's just as honest and uh, and he's he's a sharp, sharp guy. And I, I intend to continue to keep that friendship and mentorship going into the future.
0: So one way that I've observed you interact with clients is there's times that they're asking you questions that might be kind of referee questions. Hey, Earl, can I do this? Or can we do that? But you spend the majority of your time in conversations that kind of seem to fall into the coach. You ask questions of the referee versus the coach differently, and what I've observed is a real passion for, you know, I guess, an extension of mentorship, kind of financial mentorship, financial literacy. And so that seems to be important to you professionally, kind of a, the tool that you spend a lot of time creating value with, but it's also a passion outside of the office. It's where you volunteer some of your time. So I guess, talk to me about kind of financial literacy and the role that it plays in your day-to-day life
1: it's probably been seven years ago that i that i started i took on an additional volunteer thing i historically i i just to give you some background so i um growing up i learned a lot of leadership skills and and a lot of um you know just a lot of things about different careers and businesses and opportunities and through the boy scouts of america program and uh, i um I really, really enjoyed that time and the opportunities to to lead other other boys. And um, so, as you know, as I became an adult, I volunteered as scoutmaster and and in various other uh, volunteer positions through the years with the Boy Scouts of America and the Cub Scouts of America, including at times, you know, having my my own boys in the packs or troops uh, with me, and. Uh, it's it's so it's greatly rewarding you get the opportunity to spend time with your kids but you also have the opportunity to touch you know um, the lives of of you know children that uh you know young men that aren't your own and uh that's very rewarding i volunteered through church i'm a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and and so you know various opportunities to volunteer there as well but uh about seven years ago i had the opportunity to join Financial beginnings as a volunteer, and when I did so, I told them I'd like to volunteer at my um, my high school, Tigard High School. Right, graduated from Tigard. So about the last uh, seven years, I've been I've been going to the personal finance classes. There's a kind of first level class and a second level class, but I've been I've been volunteering in those classes for you know about seven years, and uh, that's been very rewarding. Um, it's it's kind of fun that it, when you think about it, the teacher who teaches the curriculum and studies the curriculum probably knows far better. But since most of us have been teenagers, we also know that there's um, there's kind of this sense that well, my that my teacher doesn't know everything or whatever. So it's it's kind of it's kind of fun to come in as an outsider and be able to reaffirm the things that the teacher has taught them. And I sense sometimes that it's like they think it's they're hearing it for the first time because maybe they didn't listen quite as closely when the teacher was there. But I've always been able to connect well with, um, with youth. And um, so when I'm there in the classroom and, and I you know, share my story and whatnot, um, it, it creates some credibility. And then so I teach uh, about five classes per semester. You know, one's on budgeting. There's some on um, banking uh credit um some on uh financing and paying for college those kind of things and i think for children that have that you know a little bit of that background right it's um it's very empowering because there's i i've had family members and and friends who get behind financially before they even realize that they're trying to behave in a financial manner or something and so You know, you look at at people who accumulate debt and you say, How did this start? When did this start? And it really started at a time when they had no financial experience. And it started with poor habits just right out of the gates, right? Where if you can help them and you plant that seed of knowledge, right? They may not be heeding it because they don't have credit cards or they don't have other consumer debt, but when they go to get that credit card if you planted the seed that hey you know be really careful right there's there's a better chance that they're going to get informed at that point and make sure that they're not making um, poor consumer or credit decisions
0: that's time well spent thanks for doing that as a society we can certainly become a lot more financially literate and you can imagine the amount of benefit that that would have so many know, relationships blow up because of financial strain, right? I guess a question I might have is kind of more personal. So, you know, you're passionate about financial literacy and then in the role that you serve, you have a view into people's finances. And for me personally, I've really grown passionate about maybe some of the intangible conversations around money. It's often becomes a proxy, a metric to measure success because it's often correlated with some level of professional achievement. So it's super tangible and in close proximity to effort. Whereas some of the other things in life, you know, investing in your kids, investing in your marriage, investing in your fitness, the tangibleness of the benefit is not always there and it's often a longer term investment. So it's harder to measure and easier to forget about. I guess sometimes it's hard to have those conversations with kids about money if you can't afford things. Like, hey, we can't afford that. But in many respects, it could be harder when you can afford it and you choose not to. And so I guess as you've grown in your own career and your own finances and as you've watched clients, some probably doing it well and some leaving room for improvement, as you raised your own kids, what were some of the ways that you helped transfer the values that have helped you be successful personally and as a financial mentor onto your kids?
1: Thanks for asking that question, it's really good. Volunteering in financial beginnings what I kind of realized was, wait a minute, I'm teaching all these kids at, you know, at the high school that I went to who are, who have taken an elective class in personal finance. I'm teaching all these kids lessons. And I thought to myself, have I really taught my kids these lessons? Um, it was, um, I've, I've since, Use the powerpoints and, and taught my kids the lessons just to make sure that they've you know they've got it. I, I'm like, all right, they've they've learned these concepts. They've at least had them presented. had the seeds planted. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, as you raise kids and you bring up an interesting point, Jared. Um, at one point, not long ago, I mean, my son Ethan is 17. When he was 11, just the week before he turned 11, he was going to be going from Cub Scouts to 11-year-old Scouts and um and they'd have regular campouts and i was driving um a Hyundai Hyundai Sonata and uh i'd been saving auto payments for 7 years to uh to buy a pickup and i decided i didn't want to pay interest so i'll just pay the pay myself the payments each month and then i'll go down and write a check and uh and buy this but it would you know it took 7 years to save up um you know for the to to do that so while we were with within just a few days of that, my son had asked me the question and he he's a big sports fan and we didn't have, we didn't have, you know, all of the, the television stations to watch all of the sports that he would like. So my son said to me, my 10 year old said, dad, if you could afford cable, would you get it? And I thought, huh, that's, interesting my son doesn't think i can afford cable and so i took him with me when we bought the truck and he watched me write the check for you know to, to pay for the for for my truck and to be able to take him on a scout outing the next day um and i bought it on his birthday and then we went on his first scout outing the next day and um and so i thought that the do- the dots were connected like i really thought that he understood like i just wrote a check to buy a truck, I could have afforded cable if I wanted, but he asked me the next week, dad, you never answered my question. If you could afford cable, would you get it, right? And so I had that discussion with him that, you know, we compared and we've always just said, we have a bucket and the bucket has money in it and you pour money into the bucket and you pull money out of the bucket, you know, and you get to choose, you know, whether you would trade the money in the bucket for something, right? And you try and kind of, You know make it work for the kids he apparently think you know thought the bucket was empty um but it's it's funny because you know you you can think that you've taught kids something but sometimes you know helping them you know providing financial information one of the things that we that comes up at the class i i asked juniors and seniors in high school i i say hey raise your hand if you know how much your parents make and typically less than half of the kids raise their hands and that for when when kids don't know their teenagers don't know what their parents make or don't know what other adults make when they have no idea how can they when they're studying different careers or investigating different careers and picking a college that might help them to advance in that career how can they really make an educated decision because money isn't everything but certainly you know, you need enough to, uh, to live. And um, so for for a lot of people, I think, you know, kids can be debilitated if they don't have any perspective when they read that, you know, this career pays $40,000. Is that a lot or is it a little? I, I don't know, it, it, de- it really depends, right? It's, it's all relative, but if they have nothing to compare their current lifestyle against, right? I think it kind of hamstrings their ability to make decisions.
0: Yeah. And sometimes in our role, kind of the financial coach, you know, the planning conversations we have, there's the knowledge component that you're talking about. But there's also so many of our conversations are about planning strategies. How do we transfer the value of the balance sheet from one generation to the next? But very rarely is there a high level of intentionality about transferring the values that preceded the value of the balance sheet, right? And because it's both. And so sometimes it's actually easier to come up with the strategy, the documents, the tactics. My dad often tells
1: a joke that, uh, you know, two, two people meet on a cruise and uh, and they're talking about their wealth. And, and the one guy says, I'm worth 10 million. And he says, what did you do to become 10 worth 10 million? And he says, I inherited 30 million. Yeah. So unfortunately, that story is probably a little too true. Um, where you know if you know someone can have worked very very hard and one generation can can have accumulated a lot of things and if we don't instill good habits or pass along not only pass along the the assets but also pass along the knowledge and and uh the wisdom then you know suddenly how'd you get you know how'd you get to be worth 10 million well i inherited 30.
0: yes yes so Kind of speaking about mistakes, I'm going to skewer you with the question, talk to me about your favorite failure. I like that question because it hopefully reshapes failure from something terminal to learning. It's kind of how the real world will educate you. So have you had the opportunity to pay a little of the real world's tuition?
1: Probably lots of opportunities. I probably repeated it twice. But um, and so I I was a pretty good student in high school. Mm-hmm. And I, I managed to, to get into BYU, which is, you know, not, not, it's not a super easy uh, school to get into. And um, I got into the school and I, um, I started out and like I said, I was a pretty good student in high school. Um, and, but I wasn't a 4.0 student or, student or anything like that. And so at one point I was sitting in a giant auditorium. There were probably four to five hundred kids in the class. It was one of the freshmen, pre, you know, uh, just a required history course called American Heritage. And I was sitting in that auditorium and the teacher said, raise your hand if you had a 4.0 or higher in high school. Now for background, I'm from Oregon. They didn't have these higher GPAs where if you take AC or if you take uh, you take college courses or whatever, um, that, you know, you can actually have a GPA higher than 4.0. But I was like, huh, 4.0 or higher. And the thing is, I believe, and I don't, I don't know whether it was true, but it seemed that half of the hands in the auditorium went up. And the next question from the professor was, raise your hand if you got a 30 or higher on the ACT. And the ACT is out of 36. 30 is a really high score, but again, I believe that half of the hands in the audience went up, and in that moment, I decided that I was too stupid to be there. I, for whatever reason, decided that I wasn't good enough to be there, and I wasn't going to be able to be successful. And so, surprise, surprise, the first semester of um, of that, the first semester at BYU, I. It got the worst GPA that I'd ever gotten ever, right? And um, and I decided that I was going to uh, take that opportunity to step away from the university and uh, do a, f- a full-time mission for the church, and uh, so went to Mexico, northern Mexico, the state of Chihuahua, and uh, served there for two years, and then came back to um, to BYU, and during that time. I adjusted my mindset and decided that I was good enough to be there. I would met a lot of people during the church service thing who also attended BYU, and I would had a chance to kind of, you know, get to know them and, and see some of their insecurities, see their strengths, become familiar with their weaknesses. And through that, when I came back to BYU, um, I, had to, I, had to, I had to get straight A's for a few semester to, semesters to make up for the, uh, that first semester to be able to, um, you know, be able to get the GPA, GPA up, to be able to get admitted to the accounting program. But it's one of my favorite failures. It's it's actually, uh, it's such a great failure that I repeated it a few times since, right? Where I've started to question myself. And, and, you know, I think Jared, you and I were having a conversation at one point where you said, you know, as a leader, sometimes people think you're up here, right? And, um, And you know inside that you're really, you know, more down in this range. And there's that tendency to kind of, you know, build, build a leader or, you know, or an advisor up to a higher level than they may be at. And so for me, um, you know, I've, I've, I've sometimes questioned, you know, myself. And, uh, and when I can adjust that mindset and realize that, you know, I can work hard. I can, you know, put in the effort, I can, you know, continue to try to learn and improve and grow, right? And that I can, you know, make sure that I'm strengthening and building relationships with those that can help me, right? That's what that's what's really um, you know been the key to, to my success. And uh, and so I, I look back at, you know, those kind of experiences when I've questioned myself and those that's probably my favorite mistake is when I when I uh, when I kind of decide that it's not you know that I'm not the I'm not the one I'm not good enough and I think eventually that leads to what can I do to improve myself or what, who can I add to my team to uh, to really help me to to get past whatever the challenge is
0: absolutely yeah I saw an image one of our clients shared with me um and it was cogs like kind of gears three different gears and one of the gears had the hub, the center of the gear, was identity. And it was talking about the way, like labeled with thinking, believing, and feeling. And the point of the image was to show the interconnectedness of collectively our thinking, feeling, and believing. It informs our identity, and our identity informs thinking, feeling, and believing. But that gear was connected ultimately to actions, people, and results. and to some extent, we probably all fight this imposter syndrome at times. When we're at the outer edge of our capacity, the organization we're leading in that moment had never been bigger than it is at that exact moment. As a CEO, none of us have any experience leading in the midst of COVID. You know, you're always on the outer edge of your aptitude, and so there's that quiet inner voice that often whispers a lie into your ear you know, about inadequacy. And candidly, very few people own up to it, right? No one ever talks about that little liar in your head that's whispering tough stuff. Brene Brown's stuff on vulnerability and kind of that authentic self and inviting people into the real you is really good stuff. It's worth reading. She's got a great TED Talk if you kind of wanted the 20-minute accelerated version, but it's true. That's a good one. So I guess one way to learn is is a failure, right? Temporary, Mm -hmm. right? there's other ways to learn and you strike me as a lifelong learner i've had the opportunity to know you now for 10 years and seen you learn and grow a lot i guess talk to me about lifelong learning and the role that it plays in your life and i guess how you do it
1: one of my guilty pleasures is is personalities like understanding people understanding what makes them tick and um and i think you know it's something that uh that that's something that over the last couple of years I've I've read a lot about kind of different personality types, different you know approaches, and I think it's been very effective for me in helping to early on when I was doing it, it helped me recognize, mm-hmm. um, you know, why the whys behind kind of how some of my team members and I we worked together, and for the most part, um, it was interesting. I found that. A lot of the teams that I'd put a, that I'd built around me, not knowing anything, not being very well informed about the kind of different personality types and and things, I'd found that when I when I actually started, you know, kind of investigating this, and and you know, my some of my uh, colleagues, you know, agreed to take personality tests. I found that um, that in a lot of cases, I was pulling together teams that worked very well together. Um, and that part of that is explained in the different personalities and the needs and the strengths and weaknesses of those team members. And so that was something that that I really enjoyed. Patrick Lencioni, I've enjoyed a lot of his, uh, I've read about four of his books, um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, The Death by Meetings, uh, The Truth About Employee Engagement. And then right now I'm working on The Motive um, but uh, I enjoy uh, Lencioni's approach, and Lencioni, in in some of their in the table group, uh, which is a company that he runs runs, in a lot of their consulting, they they have team members take personality tests to understand better how uh, how to work with each other, and to better understand kind of the motives and why people do things, what what brings them satisfaction, fulfillment, and that kind of thing so i think i tend to um you know i've I've picked up a couple books by Brené brown who you mentioned i haven't had a chance to dig into those but um i i think i tend to find someone who you know who's written a book or two and i tend to read that one and then you know if i enjoy it i read the next one so like i've really been enjoying uh lencioni and it's been very pertinent to uh, what's been, you know, going on as far as leadership transition and things at the lab. Um, you know, a little bit, you know, some some prior to, to January, and a lot since. And uh, and kind of, you know, one of the one of my uh, one of the things I've I've felt like I've been able to do well is is to to build trust with individuals, be vulnerable and open, you know, with them. And, uh, and that's, you know, really, you know, taking the first steps when a team has dysfunction, the first steps, you know, to try and, you know, ferret that out and eradicate it is, is, you know, to build trust, be vulnerable, and, uh, and, you know, kind <clears> of
0: <throat>
1: just, you know, help the team challenge themselves, question what they've thought before. So, um, anyway, Lencioni's books and kind of the, the the fables that he writes he's a great author he'd be a great fiction author He's decided to have his fiction kind of relate to business concepts and I've really enjoyed that and i've I've found it to be very very good as we've uh, built out teams.
0: He's a phenomenal speaker too. He does not lack energy that if you ever hear him in a keynote, man that guy's coming off stage uh, like sweaty he, he's earned his uh his honorarium. Have you ever heard the saying, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take? I have. All right, I'm going to throw one up here. This could be awesome or it could be terrible. So we're recording this in the infancy of your CEO tenure, but we're going to throw this up on the internet and it'll live in infamy forever. So in theory, we could play this back to you at the end of your tenure as CEO, at the end of your career at the lab. So just for kicks let's give a message to the future Earl. Do you have any advice or insight to future Earl as he's looking back on this moment in time? Talk to future Earl. What would you want future Earl to think about or remember in this moment? Future yeah. Earl.
1: Future Earl is no longer going to have power alleys. It's just going to be like Chrome. Just
0: straight, you're going to be yeah, bald, be fully bald. Up, but yeah. Uh, put, sun, right, so put, sunscreen, gonna... put sunscreen on that bald head. That's right.
1: Jared has, you know, you've, you've taken pictures of me and advanced me to age 70. You've also put on a mustache and also th- uh, about 150 pounds. So I kind of know what I, if things go bad, I know what I'm gonna look like, but. Uh,
0: we'll have to talk to marketing to see if that's worth putting in the show notes. If you want to see overweight Earl at age 70. Overweight Earl at age 70, he's a catch.
1: The um, so yeah, so future Earl, looking back, I thought you were going to say what I would say to Earl in the future, and that one I do have an answer for. That one I would say probably hand off the baton. I think if 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 my job is is if I'm successful in in my job as as the CEO of Delap, when I get to the end of my tenure, right. Um, and probably before I think it's the right time, I need to hand off the baton to the leaders who I've helped to develop, who will take this and continue running with it, and you know run with the energy of that first hundred meters of the of the four hundred and the four by four hundred relay, right? Like yeah, you know as as, as I don't want to be that guy that's uh, that's you know stumbling in. Um, you know, and hand it off. I want to, you know, power in there. And so, you know, I think I'd tell the future Earl, hand
0: it off. What would, what would the future Earl tell me? No, I, I might've phrased it the wrong way that oh. you answered the question that I was looking for. If we were actually hooping right now in the spirit of you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. If we're actually hooping that's buckets. That answer I think yep. is spot on. I think in real time, the inner narrative. Sometimes when you're not listening to that little liar that tells you that you're terrible, there's another kind of arrogant ego voice that's telling you that you're irreplaceable, that you're really important, maybe in ways that isn't actually totally true. So I think it's very challenging sometimes for leaders to pass the baton. And I think that's insightful. So I guess we can maybe put this one in the back pocket. So when it is time to take you out to pasture, we'll just play this podcast.
1: Exactly. Play the podcast.
0: And then oh. it's you. Then it's actually so you.
1: So you, that five, you five, know. I think the future Earl would tell me right now, it's not about you. Delegate.
0: That's good, man. That's spot on. Well, I'm excited for you and I'm excited for our team. I think we really have the tiger by the tail. We've certainly got our work cut out for us. Appreciate the opportunity to learn more about your journey and for you to share that with our community and, and excited for what's next. Well, thank you, Jared. I've enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye bye.